Hi, I'm Kira McAllister, and you're listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. We're on Twitter, Spotify, and iTunes. Hello, and welcome to the first of our Researcher Spotlight episodes. In the second episode of each month, we'll be focusing on one postgraduate student's research story, giving you an insight into their research and their motivations for pursuing it. The PhD we choose to focus on will be in some way connected to the theme for the month, and they will each be asked the same nine questions that have been designed to help you understand both their project and their journey. This month, our focus has been the coronavirus pandemic, and I am pleased to introduce QUB's Anya Doran, a PhD student in economics who has recently been explaining how we can learn from history to help build back the economy after the disruption caused by COVID-19. Let's hear what she had to say. Thanks so much for joining me here today. I'm really looking forward to hearing about your research mm-hmm. and your research journey and just what you find being a PhD means and you know how it works for you. Um, so we'll kick off right away and I just want you to start by telling me a bit about yourself and your research. Okay, so as you said, my name's Anya. I am a third year PhD student in economics based up in the management school here in Queens. Um, my main area of focus is economic history. So my PhD is sort of quite unusual in that it's sort of split in two because I'm doing mine by publication rather than as a big monograph. So the first half of my PhD primarily focuses on 19th century Ireland and events pre-famine, so living standards, fertility, all those sorts of things. And then the second half of my research, which is probably much more relevant at the minute, is looking at pandemics and history and what we know about pandemics, what we don't know and the lessons we can learn from those and maybe how they can help relate to a little bit to coronavirus but also going forward in terms of pandemic preparedness plans for the future and how so interesting yeah. um can you just explain what a phd by publication is so phd by publication basically we do ours each chapter of our phd is basically a separate paper that we can go on and publish so i know it's it's very popular in economics i think everyone i know does by publication whereas some of the people in the management school that are in the management PhD, they do theirs by monograph. So it's chapters that are all very much linked to one topic. Whereas because we do ours by papers, there's meant to be some sort of tenuous link amongst the three. But my link in mine is that it's economic history and that's basically all you need. So they can be three totally different papers, which I think is quite nice because it gives you a chance to go off and look at lots of different topics. You yeah. can you, you can use... Like I'm doing three totally different methodologies throughout mine, different data sources, all those sorts of things. So I think it maybe gives you more of a rounded experience in how you do your PhD. But then I think for some disciplines, I don't think by publication maybe works as well. 
yeah I think monograph you can have a much bigger topic for a monograph so in some disciplines that idea I think makes much more sense that's really that interesting mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's cool I've never come across anybody doing no, that before no, no. I guess mm-hmm. just you know in an arts uh, yeah. degree it's mm-hmm. much more a monograph and um, so can you talk to me a bit more about the aspect that you're doing on pandemics mm-hmm. so um what pandemics are you looking at so what we've done is we've decided uh, so I'm doing this paper along with another lecture in the management school and then a lecture down in the University of Cork as well so we're working on this collectively and what we've decided to do is because in economic history there's been a lot of research on very historical pandemics so plagues and all those sorts of things and we've looked at the literature and gone well no one's really looked at post-industrial revolution and all the pandemics that have happened since then so the Spanish influenza, Asian flu, Hong Kong flu, swine flu a couple of years ago we're trying to look at all of those together collectively across broad themes of sort of the mortality impact, morbidity impact, economic impact and trying to get a much more overarching view Because I think what I've noticed going through the literature is obviously when people are doing one individual paper, they're constrained by data, the area they're looking at. So it's a much more niche overview of pandemics that an individual paper is getting. But what we're doing is we're doing like a systematic literature review of all the literature that's out there that relates to these areas of pandemics. So trying to get a much broader idea of what's happened in pandemics, what their effects are. And then trying to identify maybe gaps that people haven't looked at as well. And I think that will give us a much better idea of the lessons pandemics can teach us because it's almost bringing all the literature out there together. And Mm. what lessons can we learn? Or is that a giveaway? (laughs) Is that a a spoiler? spoiler I think I think the biggest lesson for me is that we should be looking back at history. And I think when coronavirus happened, everyone had this sort of feeling of absolute shock. It was totally unprecedented. No one thought this was going to happen. I think we're we're quite short-sighted in how we live our lives. So if you'd said to us this time last year, there's going to be a pandemic, even if you didn't go into the details of there would be lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, everyone would have gone, no, no, no way, that's not going to happen. But if you look back at the last 100 years, there have been several pandemics. So I think pandemics happen a lot more than A, we give them credit for, and B, I think... Once they happen, we go, oh, well, that's them out of the way. Mm. If it does happen again, it's going to be ages down the line. So I don't think we prepare for them. Whereas if you look back at the pandemics that have happened, there's so many lessons there of what to expect, how you can help minimise the impacts, what groups are maybe more vulnerable to the effects of different pandemics. So I think there's so many lessons there that we should be taking on board in terms of pandemic preparedness. It's quite exciting, isn't it, Mm. to be working on pandemics I think, the minute. Yeah, I think exciting slash scary. Yeah. I think sometimes it's not great to be studying pandemics in the middle of a pandemic. You know, the days when you're reading about all the mortality and all the really negative side effects, you go, oh, this maybe isn't great. But I think it is really interesting. And particularly for me, that the only other areas I've researched have been 19th century Ireland, which doesn't really affect my day to day life yeah. massively. I think this is sort of a whole new experience for me, studying something that's happening essentially as we live and breathe so it's it's very different but it is really interesting but also sometimes scary (laughs) yeah leading into Mm. my second question here Mm -hmm. um I wonder just did was 
Is your research a product of coronavirus or did you know beforehand that you were going to do this? Well, before coronavirus, my plan had been that I was going to look at Spanish influenza in in just Ireland because it was somewhere that it has, it's been looked at in some history papers but hasn't really been looked at massively from the economic perspective. So I was going to look at sort of the demographic impacts of Spanish influenza and then coronavirus happened. And it suddenly felt like everyone was had papers coming out, particularly on Spanish influenza, because I think yeah. of all the pandemics, it's sort of the most comparable. And I sort of thought, oh gosh, there's all these big names suddenly doing these papers as a PhD student. How am I going to stand out? And I felt like everyone suddenly had these papers out within two months. And I thought, oh, I can, I can never compete with that. And then the two other lecturers, they knew that my plan was to do something on the Spanish influenza. They approached me and said, oh, we have this idea of doing a paper oh originally it was just an overview of the literature on Spanish influenza because they'd also they've done a paper on Spanish influenza in Ireland and they said you know we're going to do a systematic literature review of Spanish influenza and then as we started going through the literature we sort of had the idea of we'll maybe broaden this out to pandemics and history in general because there's so much out there but people don't really use it yeah and it would be nice to bring them all together so rather than just looking at one pandemic, you can compare across pandemics as well and see how they're similar, but also how they're different. So it wasn't, I think coronavirus has definitely changed the outlook of how I thought yeah. I would be looking at pandemics. Mm-hmm. I want to take it back a step now, mm-hmm. uh, just to why you started doing a PhD in the first place. Like We know research can be difficult and there can be seemingly little reward. So mm-hmm. what made you choose this path? I think it was I think I sort of fell into it. Um my original plan coming through school, I was gonna do law at university and from no age, that's what I said. That was my plan. I went there as well. <laughs> <laughs> at some point I think everyone's gonna know I'm gonna do law. And then I started studying A level economics and almost as cheesy as it sounds, sort of fell in love with the subject and thought, oh, this is really, really interesting. I really like this. And then totally scrapped my university plans and went, no, no, I'm going to go on and study. I, I picked economics with finance because I sort of thought maybe job prospect wise, having the finance in there might help some more. And then when I got to the end of my undergrad, went, no, I want to know more about economics. So I went on and did the master's. And as I was in the sort of final semester of my master's, a job came up as a research assistant in the economic history group at Queen's. And we had done we had a whole topic in our master's in economic history and I'd find it really interesting and the top the research assistant role was on the great Irish famine project so I thought well this is going to be really cool really interesting so I applied for it and got it and it was a really good insight to how research works I got to share offices with PhD students see what the PhD process looked like before I made the decision to apply so I knew what I was getting into and I I really enjoyed working on the research project I'd really enjoyed the research side of my master's because I hadn't really got to do much research at undergrad just because I was that joint degree. Yeah. It it always happened that I missed out on the research modules and really enjoyed it and thought, well, this is something I think I want to keep doing. And there's there's more questions I want to ask and try and answer. So I think I sort of bit by bit just fell into it. Yeah, Mm. that's really useful though, having Mm. that kind of experience and that insight into, I think that's kind of an aim of what we're doing with the podcast Mm. is for people who like a PhD means nothing to so many people you know it's just three letters like you can't really understand the whole Mm -hmm. like culture behind it and what you know your day-to-day life Mm -hmm. is like um so 
why, well, I suppose that question has more or less been answered, why you've chosen this specific research topic. Um, we know that it was something mm-hmm. that, you know, you had a background in and, um, yeah, and I was going to ask as well <laughs> why your research matters. But again, that's uh, quite obvious, yeah, isn't it? I think that one sort of sells itself in this sort of current environment. And I think it's really nice to have research that, I think particularly explaining to people that aren't in academic an academic background and people that aren't in economic history, especially to be able to say, oh, I do research on pandemics. It seems really interesting. It's really relevant where sometimes when I talk about my other research on Ireland in the 19th century, people are like, but why? Why does that matter? So it's nice that it, this sort of sells itself relevancy wise. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that, like I've said, that we're living through it and it makes the research, I think, more real because you're seeing a pandemic firsthand. So it's much easier to relate as well. Well, how would you answer that question? How, why does your 19th century uh, research <laughs> I matter? Should, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, I think sort of, I think sometimes people take history for granted and take, for, they maybe look at 19th century Ireland and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because you know it was 175 years ago. What's the point? But I think there's so much we don't know about Ireland and why the famine happened, why it was so severe. And I think it's really important to understand the past to sort of know where we are today, because there was a huge population loss in Ireland following the famine, which everyone knows about. But what a lot of people take for granted is that the population continued to fall for another hundred years. So it was only sort of in the 1960s when the population stopped falling. Mm. And it's the Irish population as a whole has never reached its pre-famine levels again. So I think there's so many dynamics going on there that we don't understand that it's important to try and get a better idea of the past. And it can help explain how Ireland is, what it is today. And then also, you know, Ireland has come a long way from where it was in the 19th century but there are lots of other countries out there that are still very developing. So I think history in the past offers a really good sort of almost lab to study these events that are maybe more applicable for developing countries and so on today that obviously as they're developing sort of live before our eyes, you can't necessarily study them as much, whereas we can go back to the past and see similar experiences and learn lessons from there as well. Personally, I think it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, I obviously come from a literature background and I grew up reading um, Rita Conlon McKenna's mm-hmm. uh, Under the Hawthorn yes. Tree and it's still one of my favourite mm-hmm. books. I actually bought it in Irish there for my oh, niece cool. uh, at Christmas. Um, and yeah, I think that the famine, like we learned about it in primary school mm-hmm. and it was, it's so much of Irish culture, I think, feeds back to mm-hmm. it. Um, so yeah, I completely get where you're coming from. There's so much that, you know, we can learn about ourselves and yeah. our society. Mm-hmm. Um, even going back, yeah, 175 mm-hmm. years. Yeah, um, like it was this huge moment in Irish history. And I think it sort of, it shapes everything that happened in Ireland since then. So I think it is very important to go back and understand exactly how it happened, why it happened. And I think a lot of research focuses on the famine itself and maybe doesn't look so much at the before and after mm. Ireland famine. So it's good to have those insights as well, I think. Yeah, cool. So um, has your thinking or understanding of the world changed or been affected by your research so far? I think obviously, like mm. thinking about the pandemic, do you think that how you approach coronavirus or your attitudes towards current situation is affected by 
I, I think so. Yeah, I think it may be, I don't want to say more cautious, but maybe more aware of the effects. And there's been a lot of research that talks about how all the sort of non-pharmaceutical interventions that they can bring in and how maybe over time they start to become less effective because just human behavior, people start to observe them less. As it goes on, people think, oh, it doesn't really matter anymore. So I think it makes me more conscious of things like mask wearing or just hand washing, social distancing, all those sorts of things, because I've read the research that says in previous pandemics, mortality was higher in swine, like in the second wave because of behavioural changes in people and people maybe not being as observant as they were right at the start yeah. of pandemic. So I think, yeah, I think that definitely changes my view of it as well. And then also, I think it makes me more cautious of comparisons when people talk about how one country is handling coronavirus versus another country. Because it sort of, it really annoys me when people just do the basic lists of deaths and don't take into account a no one does it by per capita, mm. which obviously I don't think you can't compare country A versus country B without taking into account that country A has a much bigger population than country B. But also there's lots of research going on at the minute as well about understanding the underlying demographics of a country. So obviously we've seen them with coronavirus. It, most of the deaths are focused in the more elderly section of the population mm-hmm. so you also have to like take into account when you're comparing across countries if a certain country has a higher proportion of yeah. all people so there's people always compare north of ireland and the south of ireland in terms of the death rate and they say oh the death rate's higher in the north but if you take into account the fact the north also has a higher proportion of older people okay when you take that into account the death rates are actually really similar right mm-hmm. that's really interesting yeah um, is there a moment that has marked your research so far? Something surprising or a moment of relief or despair? When I always think about moment of despair, I think it was last year. I It was when I was working on my first paper and I had spent six months digitising these really old sources and had done sort of a whole gear of econometrics and written a paper based on it. And I went back to check something and realised that at some point when I was joining two sources together, all my data had shifted. Mm. So it was all wrong. And I was like, what's everything I've done in the past year? Oh and he took me to And I had this, I remember sitting in my office realizing that I'd done this. And I thought, oh no, have I, have I lost an entire year of my PhD? But I'm, I'm really lucky that I save versions of everything as I go along. So I think it, it took about a week to go back and fix. And luckily when I fixed it, it didn't change what I'd done massively. But there was that moment of absolute panic of, oh my gosh, have I totally, totally messed this up? And Mm -hmm. do you think like you learned something from that? Or Mm -hmm. How I do research has totally changed now because of that. I Because it's one of those things I think you always tell yourself, I don't need to write that down. I'll remember Mm. why I've done that or what that means. Whereas now I'm... I take notes of absolutely everything. So I have for every paper I do, I now have like a little exercise book and I call it like the log book for that project. And I write down everything I do every day that I'm working on it. So if I change one variable name, I take a note of that and take a note of yeah. what I've saved it as so that if something happens, it's really easy to go back and work through. That's so useful. And people, yeah. I think 
people that have done PhDs or further ahead in PhD have always said to me, you know, take notes of everything. And you always go, yeah, no, I'll remember that. I don't need to write it down. Whereas now I'm like, I can see why people say that. Yeah. 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 Um, so is there anybody who has helped or inspired you along mm-hmm. your PhD journey? Well, I think I'm really lucky that I have I have two really good supervisors. And um, I think what a lot of people take for granted is that it's your supervisor that sort of makes or breaks your PhD experience. So I think it's really important if you are going down the PhD route and you're applying for PhD positions to think about your supervisor and who sort of has similar work ethics as you, similar research interests that you can work well with. Because at the end of the day, even though there's loads of people do PhDs, you're the only one doing a PhD on your area. So it does sort of become at times it's you and your supervisors. So I think it is very important to have supervisors that you get on well with and that if you are having problems that they're easy to talk to. So I'm really lucky that I do have two supervisors that I get on really, really well with. did you know them Mm -hmm. beforehand? Mm -hmm. So I was, I think that's where the research assistant post came in really, really handy because I was the research assistant for my first supervisor. So it was almost like a trial period which was very lucky. And then my second supervisor uh, had taught me at undergrad as well. So I had experience of him. And then I think the economics department in general are really good at integrating their master's students and PhD students and research assistants all together mm-hmm. with the whole department because they have seminars every Friday and everyone is very much encouraged to come along to them. If you've researched, you're encouraged to present. If you have any questions, they, it's very much even if your supervisor can't answer it, someone else in the department's happy to help. So I think bringing them all together that way is really good. And I think that's where being in a good department helps as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about a minute ago as well about, you know, you learning about your logbook and how to mm-hmm. move forward from your research. Is there any other research rituals that you have or what's your kind of daily routine? So I try and very much have set hours when I'm working um, and try to do them in the office during the week. So I'll try and come in for maybe nine or 10 o'clock and then stay until five or six and try and have those as my sort of core working hours so that it means that when I go home in the evenings, I don't really have to work unless I maybe have a deadline mm-hmm. or a presentation or something like that coming up. Makes it more like a job, mm-hmm. doesn't it? You know, you can kind yeah. of separate it. So I think having that working routine makes it, I think you're almost more productive. So even though maybe compared there's some people maybe work longer hours, but I think when you have the the set hours, you almost have a deadline for each day and you know yeah. you need if you've X, Y, and Z to get done, you know you need to get them done by six o'clock. So I always try and have my dedicated work hours and then always try and do it in the office during the week. Coronavirus put a bit of a, a halt on that. So it sort of knocked my routine a bit at the start of lockdown when I had to get used to working from home because I really only worked from home occasionally on weekends if I had to I try to keep weekends and evenings free as much as possible and I think knowing that you want to keep those times free it does make you more productive during the day as well when you're in the office because you know if this is what I need to get done this week I need to get it done by six o'clock on Friday. So how did you adapt working from home then did you keep the same hours? I at the start (laughs) all all hours went out the window it was one of those things I tried to keep the same hours and then I think because everyone was at home, it was one of those things where I worked in the morning and then took the afternoons off and then started working in the evenings. But I found that really didn't work for me. So 
after the first maybe month or so of lockdown, I pushed myself back into my usual sort of office hours mm-hmm. that I had been doing. So even though I was doing them from home, by still trying to keep those same hours, I found that I worked much better than those few weeks where it was sort of every hour could be a work hour or yeah. a break hour. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit like, it's tough to adjust, mm-hmm. isn't it? And I think you really need to kind of like find your way through it. I mm-hmm. mean, I think I have worked at one point in every room in my house, uh, trying to find something. Yeah. And then I needed to bury it as well when you're in the house all day. Like mm-hmm. you need to switch off yeah. and do different things. And yeah, then change learned, your location, yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. learned as well that um, I don't work as well if I set an alarm in the morning. Which is really mm-hmm. bizarre. Um, but being able to wake up naturally and feel like, okay, now I'm starting my mm-hmm. day rather than feeling like, okay, I have to get up at this time. If I'm not working by this time, like I'm late mm-hmm. or... You know, I'm, I'm exactly the same as that. If I set an alarm to try and get up earlier, I think sometimes you wake up, you wake up almost before you're ready and you're more tired. Mm-hmm. And even though you're starting work earlier, you're not being as productive in that work. Whereas I think if you just let yourself wake up naturally, you're more refreshed. And so you may be starting your day an hour later than you might have otherwise, but you're being productive straight away. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I find as well. Um, So talking again about this structure of working and separating it from the rest mm-hmm. of your life, is that how you manage your work-life balance or is there anything else that helps with that? Well, I, th- I think it's really important to have something big in your life that's separate from PhD. So I'm really involved in my local rugby club and that is my way of switching off. And I think as well, if you have something else that you're involved in that takes up time in evenings and weekends, again, that helps you keep your PhD structure during the day Mm -hmm. because you know that you have something else on that night or you have something else on Saturday, Sunday that you can't get your PhD work done. So you know, Monday to Friday in the office, I need to get this work done. But I think even just having something else that you can go, it's totally not related to your research. It's really relaxed, calm. You can go off, you have a bit of crack and it gives your mind a break. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's really important to have that social aspect to your life. That and m- sport's so good mm-hmm. for that as well because it's such kind of a mindful activity mm-hmm. as well. You know, you're not thinking about your work and, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting out in fresh air and, yeah. you know, being around other people and getting some exercise mm-hmm. as well. So I think that's maybe why as well at the start of lockdown because that was gone as well. Why my routine went out the window because there was nothing else going on. So I find that once rugby started back, my PhD time improved as well yeah I'm because the same. I, did, I play yeah. football mm-hmm. and I'm exactly the same um I think that's some like advice I would give to any new PhD students mm-hmm. is to make sure you've got something else going on in your life uh mm-hmm. last year I did um Spanish classes with mm-hmm. the language mm-hmm. center at Queens which are amazing mm-hmm. um so good to kind of have that extra opportunity mm-hmm. and mine was on a Tuesday at five o'clock and it meant that I knew on a Tuesday I would work from the office because I had mm. to be there in the evening. Yeah. So, you know, I came and did my day mm. at Queen's and it kept me there. But it was also something completely different from what I was yeah, doing. Because I think when you're an undergrad, a master's, you always think about Freshers' Fair and all mm-hmm. the different events going on at the university. But there's something about when you get to PhD, none of that's targeted at you anymore. And you sort of forget that there are still so many other activities that you can do that are switch off from PhD. Yeah. And I think you think because they're not targeted at you or they're not advertised that you go, it doesn't register with you that, 
oh, I could go off and get involved in this. So things like the Spanish classes. So I think it's great doing anything like that. So even if, yeah. even though with Spanish, it's still, there's still sort of a work element and learning element. It's totally separate and it's yeah. probably much more relaxed as well. Yeah, mm. it's just nice to have, I think, something different from mm. what you're focusing on as yeah. well, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, yeah, I do an English PhD, so Spanish does not come into my (laughs) work whatsoever. And it's just nice to kind of use a different part of your brain, Mm -hmm. I think, and flex it that way. Uh, So just to sum up today, thank you so much for uh, everything that you shared with us today. It's been really, really Mm -hmm. insightful and really, really interesting. Um, What three words would you use to sum up your PhD experience? Um, I think I would say definitely different. It's different than what I'd ever envisaged my path being it's probably very different to what I'd expected it's interesting and I think the breadth of stuff I look at and particularly pandemic stuff at the moment it's so so interesting which I think if you go down a different career route you maybe don't get that really interesting aspect and then challenging but not necessarily in a bad way I think it's just because you have to adapt and you have different things going on all the time. It's not a set nine to five where you go in every day and do the same thing. There's always different things coming up and different challenges cropping up. Thank you. Is there anything you just want to say to our listeners before you go? Any advice you would give? Um, I think if you're doing a PhD, stick at it. Try and stay positive. And I think lean on your PhD office mates or the people in not just your own school, but other schools and learn from their experiences as well. I think for me, one of the key parts to getting through PhD are my PhD friends. So get that, get a good core group of people that are going through the same thing as you that can share their own experiences and lessons. And so that, you know, if something happens to you, chances are someone's been through it before and they can say, you know, this moment might be tough but this is how I got past it. So yeah, try and get that good core grip to support you. And for anybody out there who doesn't have that, this is the gap we're hoping to Mm -hmm. fill. So please get in touch with us and let us know if you'd like to get involved or share your research or make some connections. Thank you so much, Anya. It was lovely speaking to you today. Thanks, Kira. Thanks for listening. Feel free to get in touch with us on Twitter at QUB Voices to let us know what you thought or if you would like to be featured in a Researcher Spotlight episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time exploring a new theme for November. Stay safe out there.